Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. All right, Ephesians 4. This is part three of a three-part series um, that may be longer, um, and because we've, we, we just took Ephesians 4, verse 12, and after a year plus of the Lord weaving this common thread of the fivefold and the importance of order and governance and structure um, based on the fivefold gifts that he gives us in the book of Ephesians, um, following that, we sort of went after this next verse because as soon as those things are listed, they're given a reason that they will eventually work themselves out of a job. Um, because it's temporary. We know that one day in heaven, there, there will be no uh, need for prophecy. There will be no need for teaching. There will be no need for all this stuff. But in the meantime, there is a bride that is being prepared. Amen? And so it's important that we dive deep, and so that's what we've been doing. Verse 12 um, says three things. It says, so those gifts that were just listed in 11, it says that these gifts are given for the equipping of the saints, to do the work of the ministry, which was two weeks ago and last week, respectively. And finally, for the building up of the body of Christ. Some of your Bibles say church. Some of them say edifying the body of Christ. Some of them say strengthening the church. Um, And we're going to talk about those words and their nuances in a few minutes here. But I just want to make sure that you understand how important it is that that we have worked up to this message that we're at today. Even though it's all in one verse of Scripture, the words between a couple of commas, um, we believe that it is absolutely imperative that we, as the people of God, understand our role in this. We understand that, number one, we were saints. Two weeks ago, we took quite a bit of time and talked about how we're not sinners saved by grace anymore. We are saints. We were sinners who were saved by grace and who are now saints. And, and it's really important that we adhere ourselves to that identity. And I know that there's going to be some, some, uh, some discomfort in that because we found a safe place. We've found a comfortable place um, residing in that identity of sinfulness. But when we can assume this role of sainthood, it calls us into that next line, the work of the ministry. Because as saints, now we see ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus, and we, uh, and we take upon the acts, the deeds, the, the roles of ministry that are on each and every one of us. It's not about the professional pastors and the guys with the degrees and the guys in the pulpit and the guys with the offices. It's about the priesthood of believers, a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a chosen people. And it leads us to this last line. Some of your Bibles put a period here and some put a semicolon. But the work of the ministry that the saints are doing is also for a purpose. It is the means to an end. And that end is that the bride of Christ, the body of Jesus, right? The church be built up, strengthened, edified. And in our last point, you'll see made able. So... The first question that I want to answer this morning is, why is the church so important to Jesus to begin with? There's a lot of emphasis on just getting saved. Are you born again? Have you given your heart to Jesus? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? If you did, when was it? What day? What time of day? What was the weather like? What were you wearing? If you really got saved, you'd remember. (laughs) 
And I just want to tell you, as a Pentecostal, I've been saved so many times. I just, <laughs> if you're from a Baptist tradition, you only had to get saved once. If you're Pentecostal, you just, anyway, no, it's thing, things that we've all gotten wrong. We're not going down any of those roads today, but it's all good. Um, why is the church so important to Jesus? Sometimes I wonder, well, if I was Jesus and, and, and my eyes were set on eternity, as long as all these people get saved, what's the point? Um, and the point is this. I'm going to answer this question for you, and you're free to write this down. Um, you know, says this. We are the vehicle through which our Lord chooses to effect change on the earth. The church is important to Jesus because we are the vehicle. The vehicle by which the Lord chooses to effect change on the earth. Well, couldn't he just do it himself? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't he get it right the first time? Want to hear something crazy? This is getting it right the first time. That's a big fat shock, isn't it? But I've messed up so many times. In his sovereignty, he knew that and chose you anyway, loved you anyway, said, come on and help me with this anyway. And so he's called us into this work and when we can see ourselves as saints, it starts to make sense. When we can't get our minds past the sin, we struggle with this. But we are the vehicle through which our Lord chooses to effect change on the earth. And so that comes with another important thing to understand, and that is this. A low view of the church is an insult to Jesus. I'll be honest with you. I've struggled with this. As somebody who... who eats, sleeps, and breathes church and ministry and, and all of that, it, it can be really disenchanting at times. It can be really jading at times. And, and I, uh, I know that believers and, and men and women of God and folks who are in full or part-time ministry or, or who have given decades of their lives to, to serve the Lord, uh, it, it, can, it can really feel discouraging the problem is, is when some of that discouragement starts to be projected back out of us. And now we begin to speak death and throw death back on the church. The church that Jesus chose to effect change on the earth. It's no wonder things are the way they are. I was in a, I was in a room full of pastors, uh, which I find myself in a lot these days. But, but we had a, a pastor's gathering um, on Wednesday afternoon prior to the Wednesday evening event in downtown. And um, Ashley and I were leading worship, and um, I, I just got this sense uh, of how important it is that we, and I started to share this, that, that, uh, that we make sure that we're not speaking death. We've heard all the statistics. We've read all the reports. All the facts and the numbers are in. And I'm here to tell you, they don't look good. But I'm here to tell you something else. I never cared what the facts were. I've never cared what the stats were. If we were going by stats, we should have shut this church down a long time ago because we've done everything wrong. And you know what? I didn't care, and neither has the Lord. And so we stand here today affecting change in the region of New England for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to stop. And what it means for us in this, in this context is that we have to be careful 
not to have this low view, to speak this low view. Does it mean we can't acknowledge that there are issues? Of course not. Does it mean that we can't observe critically uh, and have concerns about where things are at? Of course not. We got to get our heads out of the sand. We've got to have open eyes and be aware of of where the enemy has ensnared the body of Christ. But at the same time, We need to be able to approach those things with the hope that Jesus has given us his spirit and these giftings for the sake of building her back up. Does that make sense? Y'all with me this morning? Okay. Okay. Good. A low view of the church is an insult to Jesus. Let me tell you something. A low view of Ashley is an insult to me. If you have a low view of Ashley, you're not welcome here. I don't even want you here. See you later. See you later. You're all done. You're done here. You're dead to me. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> but in the same way that the Father sent Jesus as a light in the darkness, we, saints, we, the sainthood, okay, we are an extension of him in the shining of that light. Hey, he comes as a light. Behold, a light shineth in the darkness, a light out of Nazareth, right? We see all this prophetic stuff like lining up to Jesus is the light of the world, but we forget that just as that bride, you see, that, that, uh, that, that bride waiting at those virgins in the woods, um, Ethan Terrell just sent me that, that message from like two years ago. It was March of two years ago. We talked about the, the virgins with the oil and the ones who didn't have it. And dude, it was. It was like for today. I think I messed up. I preached it two years early. But I'm reading, I'm like, isn't this interesting Isn't this interesting that when we have the light, we think that we have the light so that Jesus knows who to come to, don't we? We're like, ooh, look at me, lighter's in the air. I'm the one with my hands up, right? The interesting thing about the light in the dark place as you wait on the groom to return is that you become a means of vision for those without it in the woods. You become a way in which sight is brought to those who are blind in the darkness. That's why having oil in our lamp is so important. That's why keeping that wick trimmed. That's why being good stewards of the revelation that he's given us is absolutely imperative for the body of Christ. Good. Here we go. He thinks highly enough of the church that he entrusts us with the gifts to prepare a bride. That's a lot of trust. That's a lot of trust. There's no getting away from it. He is the vine. We are the branches. He is the head. We are everything else. The church is important to Jesus. And the preparation of a bride has been entrusted to the individual members. Notice the gifts were given to individuals for the equipping of individual saints for the building up of not individuals anymore, a body, the capital C church, the bride. We've got to keep going. Now, listen, when we throw a line out like the building up of the body of Christ, there's like, 
There's a million different ways that we could go with this. And I want to appreciate that and say that uh, if there's something on your heart, when you read this passage and the Lord's illuminated something to you and, and you're carrying around some heavy revelation, I may miss that this morning, okay? I, I, had to, I had to go after a word for today and ask the Lord what it was that he wanted to share. And because this word is alive, everybody in this room might have something different, but I'm gonna bring to you what I feel the Lord has for the house this morning, okay? And, and I don't want you to think in any way that I'm diminishing some other message that you've heard on this or one of the other nine volumes of commentary that could be written on this because it is so heavy with revelation. But the, the thing that I feel like one of the things is it's a little different than the way I normally share and preach and teach. And that is um, to talk through a little bit of theology for a minute, okay? I, I try to leave the theology to the teachers because we have a Pastor Kurt and he's a phenomenal teacher. And we have uh, the Andersons and the Bergs and we have the, the instructors in the School of the Spirit and we have phenomenally anointed and gifted men and women of God who, who have been touched by heaven with a gift to teach and they do it supernaturally. And I will be one to lead us all back to the, to the classroom to say, hey, let's receive from our teachers. That's why I, I will give you the highest high five when you sign up for School of the Spirit because we need teaching. We talked about it last week. Why is it so important? And when you're exposed to a good teacher, how the word that they expose to you um, is sharper than two, any two-edged sword and it separates soul and spirit. That's a, that's a pretty good message. You should go back and listen to it. <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about today. I want to talk a little bit about uh, ecclesiology, about the theology of the church, okay? Because it's subtle. It's, it's, it flies under the radar for the most part. We love to, to hoe and him and haw over all of the, the, the controversial uh, theologies that we split churches over and stuff. But what's interesting is that our view of the church, what we believe about the church of Jesus Christ, actually plays a big part in what's going on here. So there are three different main theologies that I want to cover today. And most of us are some tributary of these three. The first one that I want to talk about for just a second is called replacement theology. And replacement theology is this belief that the church replaces Israel in God's plan. Now, uh, I think this one's important for us to talk about for a second because we are a church that does teach a lot, preach a lot uh, from the Old Testament. Um, A lot of uh, Pentecostal, charismatic, non-denominational, modern churches, there is a, 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 a real intense emphasis on the New Testament teaching, um, and probably rightfully so. Uh, but I have always felt a connection to the Old Testament. I've always seen the Lord so clearly through the Old Testament, and so I've been one to kind of speak out of it a lot. But I think it can be difficult to reconcile or negotiate some sort of of bridge between ancient Israel or even modern Israel and the church of today. And so replacement theology uh, was actually first sort of on the scene by uh, really some of the early church fathers, but it starts to, to manifest more in the Reformation. And it was this idea that people were still close enough to, uh, you know, Jesus' crucifixion to only see Israel through the filter of uh, pharisaical uh, sin. And so we started to paint Israel in this bad light. 
And in its extreme form, even today, replacement theology is actually very anti-Semitic in that, it, in that it throws shade on Israel and saying, you're the ones that crucified Jesus and the church is the one that was birthed to replace you because of how you got it wrong. Replacement theology basically understands this, that the covenants and promises that God gave to Israel were taken from Israel and transferred over to the church. Uh, There are a lot of issues with this view that we just don't have time to get into today, but I'm here to tell you that um, while it was a travesty what happened and that the Pharisees were way off, um, that this is not consistent with with Romans 9 through 11, which is where we, we ought to be getting a lot of our church theology, and also the fact that uh, Israel is continually referenced in the word of God all the way through Revelation. So there is no like, oh, everywhere we saw the church, I mean Israel, now we see the church. There is a, there's something else happening. The second one is separation theology. Separation theology uh, says that the church and Israel are two entirely different groups, And it teaches that um, the church is a new entity with a distinct destiny, separate from that of Israel. Now, my conviction is that as the American church, we can can lend ourselves, maybe even unintentionally to this, because there's a part of us that likes to be ignorant toward things that we might have to be responsible for. And so we like the idea of Israel being on the other side of the world. We like the idea of Israel, uh, you know, being this place that we take a trip to, to walk where Jesus walked, and then we fly home and eat a hamburger. We, we, like, uh, we, we like the separation, and so we keep the separation. In fact, we may be the ones to burn the bridges and build the walls to make sure that we're separate enough that nothing that happens over there has implications on us over here. Separation theology... Um, it is very American. It's very elitist. And I think that sometimes in all the ways that we as Americans have blurred the lines between nationalism and patriotism and our faith, um, we have fallen prey to, to this theology. And I want to be careful about this. And I, and I think it's important that we understand this because uh, the way in which we view the church and the global perspective, the father's perspective it does play out in how we live our lives as believers. Finally, there's another one. Everybody say, thank the Lord. There's another one. And I'm going to call this remnant theology. Now, some of you may have studied this in the past, and, and you see it broken down into dispensationalism and progressive dispensationalism and, and uh, covenantalism and, uh, versus progressive covenantalism. But Today, our third one and final one is remnant theology. And remnant theology teaches that there's an overlap in some manner, okay? And again, there are all sorts of different tributaries of this, but the the gist of it is this. The remnant theology teaches that the church partakes in covenant and promise given to the remnant of Israel. Christians identify with the remnant of Israel. And, and this is consistent with, um, with early prophetic writings all the way through to the end, um, which is this idea that while, yes, so much of Israel fell away, so much of Israel refused to acknowledge uh, the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies and so have denied Jesus as the Son of God, there is a remnant. 
The Lord's always kept a remnant for himself. And there's a remnant of people who have adhered themselves uh, to the teachings of Jesus, to the, uh, the lordship of Jesus, and who are now experiencing and will experience the fulfillment of the covenants and the promises of God. Now, what happened when the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, when the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, we, uh, we became eligible, and we didn't figure it out right away. There was a dream and a trip to Cornelius' house, and Peter had to you know, see some unclean animals and eat them and whatever in order for all of this to come to pass. But at the end of the day, what we realize is that part of the new covenant, part of what Jesus did was he rips the veil and in doing so invites not only Jews into this new thing with the Lord, but Gentiles as well. And so now the rest of the world gets to partake, or all who will call upon Jesus and be saved, gets to partake of those same covenant promises eligible in the remnant. Does that make sense? So the American way to see that is that the remnant of Israel can be part of us. (laughs) But the biblical way to see it is that the world around the church of Jesus Christ gets to be part of them. It's a big difference. But saints, it's why we have to have great consideration for Israel. We cannot stick our heads in the sand. They cannot be absent from our prayer life. We need to be conscious. We need to be conscious and aware of what's happening there and how the Spirit of God is leading us to pray. And uh, listen... I know. Well, they're on the other side of the world. They're making decisions. and We can come up with a million reasons. Don't do that. That's so American. Okay? Let's be so the church instead. Okay? Let's pray for peace in Israel. Let's, let's vote for politicians who are more concerned with giving our prayers to Israel than they are giving our land to China. How about that? Can we do that too? I swear, if we, if, we, if we just got a hold of the things that were actually important to the Father, we wouldn't miss what we miss. And the world wouldn't be the mess that it is. Okay, so I want to just wrap this up and then get you all out of here quick. Um, but I love, I, I think it's so important that we're aware of of what it means to identify with the remnant because we see right in this transition, and I just said it a minute ago, the the movement from individuals, whether it's the giftings or the saints, we see this shift onto the corporate united whole, the body of Christ. But even this word body, it comes from the Greek soma, which if you have uh, sat through one of our soul studies, anybody in here been through a soul study? Couple, nine, seven, the number's going down, six, five, I see that hand. Just there in the back, thank you for being a part of that. Um, the soul study is important, and it does, uh, it does kind of expose our church to our, our, uh, what we feel the Lord's put on us for inner healing and stuff like that, but I think it's in like the introduction of that that I talk about uh, soma being the body but, but talking about how that word soma is actually etymologically sourced in, in, in another word, sozo. And how that word sozo is, uh, it means to be rescued, delivered, or healed, made whole. 
But body, in and of itself, can still be broken. Body, soma, in and of itself, can just be a bucket full of parts. It's a, it's a body of parts. But sozo is what brings healing and health and alignment and holistic care to that body. And so what's happening here is the body of Christ, saints, if we're real with ourselves, the, but we've got to be able to say the body of Christ must be strengthened. Why? Because it's weak. Because it's weak. Just to say we've gone from saints to the body does not mean that we are yet the bride, that we are yet the bride without spot or wrinkle, the bride that is ready for the return of Jesus. Can we agree that we are not yet that bride? Lord, help us. So the body must be strengthened. It must be edified. It must be built up. Why? Because it's weak, weak from centuries of sin, idolatry, fear, doubt intellectualism, paganism, humanism, religion. We've been weakened. We've been beat up and beat down. But when you see these gifts begin to equip believers and saints come away from sin and take on that work the body will be built again. The body will be strengthened again. And we will rise to what he's called us to. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to just close with this last thing. And, and again, like, you know how like a lot of pastors will have like points with like alliteration where all the points start with the same letter? And it's so good. And I wish sometimes, I wish, I mean, I listen to Pastor Daniel and some of these guys, and it's like, these guys have C's for everything, you know? And I'm like a little peanut butter and jealous of it because I'm like, I don't have flashy one-line zingers that, you know, everybody, your kids are walking around for years saying, I wish I did. Thank you all for bearing with me. But as I was praying, I said, Lord, what does this come down to? If, if, if building up Literally, if that word for building up, for strengthening, for edifying, if, it, if at its lowest common denominator, it literally just means to make more able. Able to do what? Able to do what? Well, well I don't want to just be more able. I'm not going to crunch fitness four days a week at 4.30 in the morning just to be stronger for the sake of being strong. You know what I'm saying? I want to throw my wife over my shoulder and run around the yard. Which I, I could actually do that before. I carried you over the threshold and I was a lot weaker then. Um, the deal is this. I want to be able to save my family from a burning building if I have to. I want to be able to carry all of you. That's lofty. It's expectation. Miracles. I believe in miracles. When somebody comes and runs up on the stage in the middle of a worship set, I want to be able to protect the worship team. <laughs> oh, that was, that, that was first service. Never mind. Y'all weren't there. Um, end of day, I want, to, uh, I want to know why we need to be made more able. And as I asked the Lord, he just gave me three things, and I want to leave them with you this morning as you go from here. Super cliche, super simple but so important.
the very first one, more able to love the Lord, just to love the Lord. Number two, to lead the lost. And number three, to leave a legacy. It can't be that simple. Is that really what building up the body means to make us more able to love the Lord? Augustine, who, by the way, also had some very wrong views concerning replacement theology. Augustine said this one profound line that I loved. He said, love the Lord and do as you will. And it was kind of a smack in the face to all the condemnation and the legalistic teaching of the day. But it basically is this. If we follow Jesus's number one commandment to love the Lord, your God, right? With everything that you have. If we, if we really did that, here's what's interesting. We wouldn't have to worry about the other stuff. See, loving the Lord comes with freedom unimaginable. It's kind of like if you seek the kingdom first, everything else is added. Well, if you love the Lord first, love the Lord first before anything else, love him with everything that you have. Love him. Love him with your family. Love him with your finances. Love him with your careers. Love him with your gifts, your time and your talent and your treasure and all that is yours to steward. Love him first. Love him before yourself. Love him before your spouse. It's the best thing you can do for them is to love him first. Love the Lord. Number two, lead the lost. There's a great commission aspect to this. And it's real and it's huge and it's big and it's growing. The harvest is great and the laborers are few. And for such a time as this, saints, that we are able, more able, increasingly able to lead the lost. Some of us, we're doing a crappy job of leading other Christians, let alone leading the lost. Some of us, we can't get out of our own way. And so the, the younger believers, we're leading them astray. We're injecting our priorities and our, and our intentions and our agendas into young, impressionable believers. And I'm here to tell you, you will stand before God and answer for that. And Jesus himself says, it's better that you wear a millstone necklace and take a dive off a short dock than it is for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be careful. Be careful. If you're not mature enough to have a, a, a fruitful relationship with a younger believer, then please introduce them to someone who is. But leading the lost, it's not just about more more uh, sinners' prayers being prayed and more conversion cards being filled out and more baptisms happening. You see, leading the lost is for us. It keeps us postured the way we need to be postured. It keeps us conscious and concerned about what's on the Father's heart. It keeps us living with our head out of the sand. Hey, everything I do is leading someone somewhere. Every word I say is leading someone somewhere. Lead the lost. Lead the lost. 
Some of us, we're more concerned with trying to raise somebody from the dead when there's a whole world of dead people out there that just need to be introduced to Jesus. Lead the lost. And finally, leave a legacy. A legacy that is reproductive. Leave a legacy. Leave a legacy. I grew up in a time, in a generation when people thought loud faith, noisy faith was good faith. And so people made it loud. And when they had loud voices, they went and got bullhorns. How loud can we make it? How outspoken can we be as Christians? And while in the moment it's, there's a lot of hype associated with loud faith, I want to tell you this morning, saints, that loud faith leaves echoes. that just clang off the walls of an empty generation. And so instead of the next generation growing up and hearing the still small voice of the Lord, they just grow up hearing a cacophony of noise and confusion and chaos. But legacy faith, legacy faith builds up a new generation to pick up where the one before it left off. We're all done with the two steps forward and 19 steps back business that the church has been notorious for for so long. Leave a legacy. Leave a legacy with your gifts. Leave a legacy with your finances. Leave a legacy. That's why scripture teaches us to store up so that it's not just your kids have enough inheritance, but so that your grandkids can live off of what you, that's legacy. And the same is true of our, of our spiritual state. We can live our lives in such a way that we prepare a table that our great, great grandkids can grow up at eating the word of the Lord, being sustained by his presence, introduced to his glory. That is the church. That is a body built up and made able. That is the bride he's coming back for. So Father, we thank you. We thank you that through Jesus, you have entrusted us with this great and eternal task Lord, and I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't take it on as some unimaginable burden, but that we would would receive it as an unimaginable blessing to be called for such a time as this to see a body turned into a bride, to to see folks who are struggling on every end of the spectrum to be brought together and strengthened, united, built up, and made able able to love you the way you love us, able to lead the lost in a way that is indicative of your heart for them, and able to leave a legacy behind that brings fruit and growth and life to those generations. So we thank you, God. And we say, bless this work, Lord, because it's for you. It's all for you. It's always been. It's your bride. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. 
Love you guys. God bless you and have the best day of your life.